You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off. My rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durban Marshall credit card bill. There's a well-known conspiracy theory that says there's a secret elite group of people who rule the world. There's a lesser-known theory that this elite group is comprised of satanic, pedophile, lizard people. One man has made it his mission to tell the world about this threat to world freedom, and his name is David Icke. On this episode of Monster Talk, We'll be talking with John Ronson about his experiences with David Icke, about lizard people, about child sex abuse amongst the elites, and about being publicly shamed. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm your host, Blake Smith. When it comes to conspiracy theories, any that are predicated on the idea that monsters or aliens or monster aliens are crossbreeding with humans are easily dismissed because that's not how human reproduction works. It is often difficult to get two humans to successfully make a healthy baby, and they're the same species. We'd be more likely to get a satyr-like goat people from overly amorous shepherds than any kind of hybrid from a pairing with non-earthlings. Not only would we not be genetically compatible, but it is completely implausible that they would even have DNA. That particular complex chemical arrangement is specific to earth life, where it evolved over millions of years and has diversified into the myriad arrangements which comprise the flora and fauna of our planet. That being said... People still believe in conspiracies. And in the world of strange conspiracies, the idea that there are lizard people who can assume human guise and rule through centuries-old bloodlines is quite popular. It's not up there with the fear of toxins and big pharma, but it has thousands of believers and many successful books and TV shows have explored the idea uncritically. I'm not being closed-minded when I say that there are no lizard people ruling the earth. There are some ideas that are so absurd that they're self-evidently false, or at least they should be. Lizard people have appeared in fiction and legend, notably in some ripping yarns by Robert E. Howard and in the television series V. The biggest proponent of the idea, and certainly one of the people who have helped codify the lizard man narrative, 
is David Icke. Author and researcher John Ronson did a really interesting documentary about Icke back in the 90s, and I managed to catch up with him while I was on a publicity tour for his newest book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed. John's always fun to talk to, and I was delighted at how much time he was able to give to us to discuss some of his older work. But I can tell you that his new book is one of his best and is well worth reading, though you may feel a bit gut-punched throughout the experience. Let's have some Monster Talk. John Ronson is the author of books, radio, and television shows. I'm especially fond of them, Adventures with Extremists and The Men Who Stare at Goats, and the book that we talked about in his previous visit to Monster Talk, which was The Psychopath Test. His most recent book was just released and is titled, So You've Been Publicly Shamed. A link to select works from his oeuvre will be in the show notes at monstertalk.org. So I'd like to welcome back to Monster Talk, John Ronson. Hi, how are you doing, Blake? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm, I, well, I would say I was okay, but actually that would be a bit of a lie. I have been on a book tour for six weeks. And whilst I've been assiduously using hand sanitizer and, like, things to stave off colds, um, it failed me, and now I've got a cold. No, you, you definitely get exposed to a lot of germs on the road. I know that feeling. So, yeah, in fact, uh, yeah. Karen can't be here tonight, and she's having a terrible cold and a pregnancy. These are not related. but uh, <laughs> so, so she says hello and wishes you uh, the best. So. Oh. But I, I asked you here to, today to talk about content from one of your older books so that we could discuss an idea that's sort of related to the, the theme of this monster show. But I also believe there's some sort of theme crossover with your newest book that will come out when we talk about it. So um, I really enjoyed them, Adventures with Extremists, as well as the uh, video series that came out with that, The Secret Rulers of the World. And this was probably the first time I encountered this idea about uh, David Icke and the idea that there were secretly reptilian beings controlling the world. Yeah. Uh, now, I don't know how many uh, of our listeners will be familiar with David and, and his transition from his previous life into his sort of current role. Can you tell us a little bit about who David was before he became who he is now and what happened to him? Sure. David was a, he was a household name uh, in Britain. So he started life as a professional soccer player. He was a goalkeeper for, I think, Leicester City, which is a kind of um, mid- to lower-range British soccer team, uh, mid-range, I guess. Uh, but then his football career was cut short early with arthritis, and he became a sports personality. So like a TV presenter, and would present the snooker, and I think would sometimes present Grandstand, which was the big you know, sports show on the BBC. So he became really famous, really well-known. Um, and then he kind of transitioned into becoming a spokesman for the Green Party in Britain. So, you know, that sort of took people by surprise a little bit. And then he suddenly announced, apropos of nothing, in about 1991, he went on to Britain's biggest chat show, The Wogan Show, and announced that he was the son of God. Uh, that um, and there was going to be earthquakes and hurricanes and he was the son of God and he had to only wear turquoise um, and there was an extraordinary moment when the audience were laughing and David Axon said like I'm glad there's so much laughter in the audience tonight because laughter is a great healer and Terry Wogan the, the interviewer said but they're not laughing with you, they're laughing at you. 
and there was like a scream of hysterical laughter in the audience. Um, and then after that, David Icke was mocked, and you know you couldn't turn on a kind of British version of Leno or Letterman without the comedian, you know, making a joke about David Icke. Um, he was just a figure of ridicule, uh, and he vanished for a little while. And then he came back first as a kind of pretty regular mainstream sort of conspiracy theorist. When I, talk, when I say mainstream, I mean just like, you know, just a kind of regular conspiracy theorist talking about, you know, the New World Order and the Bilderberg Group. And then suddenly he came out with a new theory, which is the thing that made him probably most famous at all, which was that the ruling elite, the shadowy cabal that secretly rules the world, are actually blood-drinking, child-sacrificing, paedophile lizards who have adopted human form. Um, and that's when I kind of got involved in, with David Icke, when he came out with his lizard theory. Wow. So... You got to talk to him. I mean, you, you traveled with him and videoed him, right? Yeah, I spent a long time with him. I still see him from time to time. We're, we're still in touch. Um, uh, but yeah, back then, I remember my producer, uh, Fenton Bailey, said to me, you know, you've got to make a film about David Icke. It's this kind of, you know, he's coming up with this kind of crazy new theory about giant lizards secretly ruling the world. You've got to make a film about it. And I... It didn't really engage me. I, I thought this is just too, you know, it's just too, it's too crazy. And obviously David's, you know, troubled. And, and I, But then what I discovered, i tell you what it was. I, I, I had a death threat from some Islamic fundamentalists. And so I went to see the Board of Deputies for British Jews, like a kind of Jewish defense organization, because I was kind of scared that I might be killed. So I went to see the Board of Deputies, and when I was sitting in the waiting room about to see the Board of Deputies, I picked up a copy of the Jewish Chronicle, and there was an article in there about David Icke, about how he believed that giant lizards secretly ruled the world, and it was quite obvious that when he said giant lizards, he was using code, and what he actually meant was that Jews secretly ruled the world. And I just thought that was so interesting that... Um, people thought that when David Icke said lizards, he meant Jews. And that kind of brought the story alive for me. Ah, you, you actually, uh, you covered that really nicely in your documentary. And I wonder, I didn't feel like you made a specific conclusion per se in the show. Did, where, do you, where do you fall on that now? I mean, do, you, do you think David means Jews or do you think David means lizards? I think David means lizards, but I think some of his followers you know, are anti-Semites and take it to mean Jews. And, you know, David's toyed with that thing. I mean, there was a, there was a brief moment um, a number of years ago when, when David's website linked to, like, the International Jew, the Henry Ford book, um, like, you should read the International Jew. And I actually asked David about that much more recently, and he said... It was his, you know, he had, a, he had an anti-Semitic webmaster, and as soon as it, it was um, drawn to his attention, he he no longer linked to it. Um, you know, I don't think it would be fair to to kind of demonise David as an anti-Semite. I think he's he's, you know, he's he's much more complicated than that. So. D- <laughs> 
he seems to have managed to come from what seemed like it might have been a pretty serious mental break of some kind to uh, at least maintaining a, a sort of cogent thread, right? I mean, it's, I would say, uh, biologically implausible that people are really lizards, but he's consistent with it and is able to maintain lectures and do videos and that sort of thing and make a business out of it. Yeah, he's done really well. I mean, I followed him to Vancouver um, because I knew that there was a group of anti-racists like the Anti-Defamation League and the Canadian Jewish Congress and various sort of more you know, militant, young, anti-racist groups who were all getting together to try and you know, battle David Icke. So I knew that you know, he was going to go around Canada doing, doing the lizard talk and then all these people were going to try and stop him and get his book seized and incinerated. And um, so I made a film called David Icke, The Lizards and the Jews, um, which was all about his trip to Vancouver. And there's also a, um, a chapter in my book, Them, about that called There Are Lizards and There Are Lizards. Um, and it was extraordinary because, um, I mean, frankly, the people trying to, trying to attack David Icke came over <laughs> crazier than David did. And David was really successful. I mean, he was filling big theatres. He was filling probably a thousand-seater theatre with his theories. So you're right, he had managed to... Um, he had managed to really tap a nerve. You know, he was he was um, hitting the sort of spiritualist, anti-New World Order, you know, conspiracy world, and had become, probably after Alex Jones, became like the second biggest, most successful conspiracy theorist in the world uh, with his lizard theory. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, when you're with him, he... I mean, I, I, I can't diagnose him, you know, I mean, and, and I would be absolutely wrong to try and diagnose him. No, 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 and I wouldn't yeah. either, but, no. Yeah, but what I would say is that when you're with him, he's just a, you know, he's a, he's a you know, he's a, a, a pleasant, you know, I like him. I like David, and, and I've, I've stayed in touch with him over the years. Um, Russell Brand has put us together a few times, because Russell's both a fan of mine <laughs> and a fan of his. So I've done some TV shows with the three of them and with the two of them and, um, um, you know, kept in touch with them a little bit that way. Um, and, yeah, he's still going. Um, but the thing, the anti-racist, the people who were trying to, like, destroy David, um, so they got his, they got various um, public appearances cancelled and radio shows cancelled. Um, and then they decided to cap it all by launching a custard pie attack on him at a bookstore in Vancouver. And that was the climax of my documentary. They thought they would publicly shame him. They would humiliate him in front of his fans by throwing a custard pie at him. Um, so we filmed it without telling David that this was going to happen because we didn't want to... What's the word? I didn't want to mess with unfolding reality. Sure, sure. Yeah, and... Um, Anyway, the, the pie attackers threw the pie and it missed David and instead splattered all over the children's book section. So it really backfired and David came out the winner. I've seen that, actually, and I thought it was a very well put together video. Um, and I, will, yeah, if, I loved it. I loved doing that particular film. Do you know if it's for sale? 
I, I can't, no, I can't. it's not. You can probably find it. I think you can find like a sort of grainy copy of it on YouTube. But my written version of it um, is in my book, Them. Yes. So you can kind of read everything that happened in Them. Yeah, I, it, I've actually, the version I've seen was uh, very grainy, and, and I've been trying to find a better version. I haven't been able, I would love to buy it if it was for sale. So I've got a, I've got a, um, a kind of beat of it. And in fact, I showed it quite recently at a museum in, um, in Brooklyn. Um, and so I, I did a couple of screenings of it, and that's really the only time it's been shown in any decent way in 15 years. Wow. So I've seen. So David always seems sincere. He seems very charismatic. But you know, if you listen to what he's saying, it doesn't. It's impossible. I don't. Does he have any kind of science background? I mean, does anyone ever ask? Everyone always gets into the well. How could they be in power? And I, I rarely hear people. Or I rarely see articles where he's directly confronted with the implausibility of the premise. Of the um, yeah, I certainly didn't do that. Um, he he would talk about how some people are still born with with tails, um, but um, yeah, no, I don't know. Any, I mean, I, I don't know anybody who's done that. Yeah, I don't. I, I think, don't. I think probably because we can all assume that the ruling elite aren't lizards. <laughs> oh, but I, but I will tell you something um, really interesting about David, um, which is that years ago, like, you know, around the time of the, of the lizard theory first coming out, he was also saying that the ruling elite are all paedophiles. They're all in a paedophile ring together. And everybody mocked that as much as they mocked the lizard theory. And sure enough, years and years and years later, I don't know if you're following it, but you kind of was right about the paedophiles. I mean, so many um, powerful members of the British establishment in the 1970s and 1980s have now been exposed as being paedophiles. And only David Icke was saying it back then. Now, of course, you could say, well, a broken clock is, tw- is right twice a day. <laughs> But I would, but I would say actually there's something else going on. I think this is really interesting. Actually, I'm going to say this, and you can tell me what you think about this. I think um, David Icke, because he was a kind of marginalised outsider, because he'd been like attacked and humiliated and mocked, he was empathising with other people who nobody believed. So he was listening. You know, he was going to sources that everybody else thought was nuts. And sometimes the sources were nuts, like, you know, lizards rule the world, and the New World Order rules the world, and blah, blah, blah. But he was also finding people on the fringes who were saying, you know, I was the victim of a VIP paedophile ring that involved politicians and celebrities and bankers. And everybody thought that was nuts, but David Icke was listening to those people. And 20 years later, those people's stories are being validated. It's an, it's a it seems plausible to me. Uh, I mean, yeah. So the fact that he was marginalised sort of sent him to those places where people turned out to be telling the truth, and that they would probably seek him out as someone who was willing to listen, right? So yeah, yeah, I think so. I think it's really interesting because I think it gets to questions about the meritocracy. It's like people didn't believe David Icke because he was nuts, but actually, in that particular thing about the about the paedophiles. David Icke was onto something, um, and nobody listened to him because he didn't fit into the concept of the meritocracy. People didn't think um, we should listen to David Icke because he wasn't of merit. 
Although it does have that risk uh, of uh, the the conspiratorial view would probably I'm just off the top of my head from having read a lot of these things. Um, they deliberately leaked it to David Icke, knowing that when he said it, it would help uh, make it even less plausible that people would believe it. Right, right. Yeah, <laughs> but I, what I don't know disinformation. I'll probably right. find out. <laughs> it's like where David Icke got the pedophile information from. But what I can tell you is that all these years later, you know, it's really, it's no longer considered crazy. Wow. I think that politicians in the 1980s, close to Margaret Thatcher, and lots and lots of British celebrities, you know, household names in the 70s and 80s, really were all part of the paedophile ring together. It is, you know, that's the thing. It's like, it, there's this sort of comical aspect to it. Because <laughs> lizards don't rule the world, all right? But, but then there's this other side, which is the uh, – uh, it's it, – here's a guy who seems to have had something gone horribly wrong with his reasoning. Um, but what are you going to do, right? I mean, uh, yeah. the idea is out there. And, and it, amazingly to me, people aren't just either you know, mocking him or feeling sorry for him. People are believing him. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Yeah, well, and the paedophile stuff all coming out, you know, is going to really help that. I mean, I think David's going to have, like, a second wind now because <laughs> that aspect of what he was saying all those years ago is coming true. Yeah, um, yeah. But it was interesting, putting aside the paedophiles for a second, um, it was really interesting to me when I was in Vancouver that, you know, the people of Vancouver were much more on David Icke's side Um and his right to free speech and his right to talk about the lizards and the paedophiles than they were on the side of the people on my side of the fence, you know, the anti-racist groups and so on, who were trying to stop him. I mean, they became the villains, you know, in, in public opinion in Vancouver. The people trying to stop David became the villains. And David sold out, you know, this theatre in Vancouver. I can't remember the name of it, but it was a big theatre, and David sold it out. Do you, do you think that the sellout crowd was in part a response to... Uh, uh, a response to people trying to silence him? Yeah, I'd say to an extent. Yeah, yeah I would. Yeah. yeah. So, I know that's really interesting. Is that people just did not want, you know, to be told, you know, what to think by, by you know, by people who were trying to do, you know, the work of sort of social justice um, campaigners. Do you, have you ever seen the uh, Jesse Ventura conspiracies TV series he did? No, although I um, annoyingly appear in one, and they um, <laughs> and they re-edited me to make it look like I was a big believer in in all of that stuff. I've always been, I've always felt slightly um, 
slightly annoyed by, by that series. I've never seen it, but I know I'm in it and don't come over that well. Well, that, uh, David is on the show too, and basically uh, there's this beautiful scene, which I'm sure is heavily edited in favor of Ventura, but of David basically arguing with Ventura over whether or not his theories are crazy or not. I mean, it's, it, it would be like him and Alex Jones having an argument. It would just be to a third party who's interested in this overall concept of conspiracy theories. It's, it's a fascinating thing to see these two go ballistic at each other. So, That's really funny. It really just, is. You know, all these years later, I mean, I had a great 10 days in Vancouver with David and, and, you know, that great film and that great adventure happened because of David. And in the end, the fact that he enriched my life in that way is, is my big memory of the whole thing. And now when I see him, I, I feel happy to see him and we always have a nice chat and, and I like him. I like David. Well, I mean, if you can put aside the fact that he has strange theories, his intent has always seemed to be to alert people to a danger that he perceives as quite real. And as history is showing, some of it was true. There you I go. Mean, you know, back then in the early 90s or the mid 90s, actually even the late 90s, um, people assumed that, every, you know, people like us, you know, rational people, assumes that everything David Ike said was nuts. And, you know, it's, it's so interesting to me that 15 years later, a huge slither of it has been proved to have been true. And we're all going to be eating crow when it turns out he is the son of God. So right. I'm, <laughs> I'm the queen of the lizard. <laughs> so your newest book is on public shaming. Um, and but obviously everything we just talked about just now is, you know, there was an awful lot of public shaming involved. David was publicly shamed when he first came out with the Son of God theory, and then the anti-racist tried to publicly shame David, um, you know, um, when he was doing the lizard stuff in Vancouver. So Sure, but that was all in the... There was a lot of shaming in it. Yeah, but it was such a primitive time. This was before social media. Yeah. So you really couldn't get the kind of traction that you can now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Funnily enough, I wonder what would happen with David now on social media. Um, I mean, he's sort of on, so he's on Twitter a lot, uh, you know, yeah. com complaining, but I don't know how much traction he gets. Yeah. He's not the sort of person that social media would go for, actually. No, probably not. No, because he's not, because what social media goes on, this is what my new book's about, is about, you know, we, we attack and destroy people who misuse their privilege. But, which is, of course, a, a good thing to attack. Um, but we're doing it in a very trigger-happy way, and there's a lot of scalps, and a lot of people are being ruined as a result of it. And we don't want to think about that. But I'm sort of forcing us to think about that with this new book. No, I think you're doing a good job. It's an excellent read. I, I, there's something strange that happens, and, and it's happening. I, I think this is my perception, right, as... I'll be honest, I've never felt like like I was ever really truly a part of any community. So I've always been like when I'm in a community, I'm also sort of silently observing it, right? You know, even if it's just always so I'm fascinated to see as I am involved in various social groups, they in, in, inevitably uh, dissolve into inner turmoil. There's always some kind of fight going on or argument. And, and social well, media is... Oh, it, it, for sure in the skeptic community. And, but it's, it's what's true for the skeptics community is true for church communities I was with before that. And uh, just 
all kinds of uh, various groups, gaming communities. You know, I, I'm, I'm not much of a joiner, but I see it happen again and again. And oh, and it, <laughs> I've had people tell me it happens in uh, uh, academic circles as well, where uh, just oh so, my god, yeah. <laughs> so, tell me about it. <laughs> I mean, I know people who have dropped out of academia. That was what they spent, you know, years and years to get involved with, to do research in, and then found that the the um, I guess what's the toxicity of the social environment uh, destroyed any joy that they had. <laughs> yeah, I found. I found members of the academic community to be stunningly cruel. Cruel, yeah, good word, good word. And and I think so. Social media sort of removes uh, the empathy factor. Uh, I think Louis C.K. did a bit where he talks about some kid calling another kid fat and how you feel powerful, but then you sort of see the sad look on your the, the person's face and you you think, oh, maybe I shouldn't do that. But then on, online, you do the fat. You get the thrill, and you never get the negative consequences. Yeah, and I would meet. I mean, you know, in that line is really what I wanted to write this book for, because I wanted people. I love the fact, you know, the best thing that people say about this new book um, is they say it, it's terrifying to read it. It feels terrifying, and it's because I am humanizing the people that we are destroying, and I'm making people feel what it feels like to be destroyed by us. And, and I sort of go into people's homes and I see the terror and I see, you know, the anxiety and the agony. Um, so, yeah, I think my book is like a sort of 70,000 word examination of that of that Louis C.K. bit. Yeah, and, and, and it's, it's very good. It's I, I, I don't think I can overstate how uh, entertaining and I think socially important it is. It's 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 really quite different from a lot of the other stuff that you've done. Not that those I, were I great. It's about us a lot. Well, I suppose all my books are about us in a way. But yeah. I definitely felt more passionate. Uh, I, I felt like my other books, the passion came from enjoying the kind of absurdity of the situations and writing a kind of Vonnegut-esque like, romp into dark and serious worlds. But this book is less like that. This book is, I, I, it, it feels kind of wrenched for my heart more, I think. Yeah. So, you know, this will sound rather non sequitur, but like the men who stare at goats, right? Mm -hmm. There's a couple of stories in there that I thought were extremely poignant. And one was the uh, Barney the Dinosaur torture story. Right. And the, I guess the, the point of that was a horrible torture was taking place. But because the story involved the song from Barney the Dinosaur the news coverage was comical. And the other, yeah. the other was the CIA LSD story, yeah. uh, which was pertinent to me because by the time I was uh, a young lad growing up, uh, my mom had heard that story as an urban legend uh, about people giving LSD and suicides and all this sort of stuff. But both of those stories were not a part of the film. So in, in some sense, the film was doing the same sort of thing you were kind of complaining about in the book. Uh, Right. Although the Barney stuff did come into the end of the movie, but in in quite in quite quickly, but it did come into the end of the movie. Um, in fact, that Barney clip, of, like everybody on the Today program, Katie Couric and people, you know, laughing about the funny torture, um, it does make it to the end of the movie. But but I but I but I know what you're saying. Um, I think the people who made the movie had a they had a sort of slightly different agenda to me. And I'm not saying that as a criticism at all, but they wanted to make a film that was really kind-hearted about 
the people who were part of this, you know, crazy military unit that thought they could kill goats just by staring at them. This sort of idealism of of military extreme out of the box thinking. They wanted to make a film that was like incredibly empathetic and kind-hearted about those people. So that was like their agenda. And I think they did that really well. I think it's a really sweet-natured film. Oh, it is um, very. It's very sweet. And yeah. I, I, I just, I really like the darkness in your book, John. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I just think honestly, look, you know what? I mean, I know that um, that when you sell the film rights to a book, you have to let the filmmaker. Oh, sure, do sure, sure. Do. And, and I really, and you know what? About a year ago, me and Peter Strawn, who who wrote the screenplay for the film, watched it together at a festival I was curating, a movie, a film festival I was curating, and we both felt exactly the same way about the film that we felt when we first saw it four or five years ago. We said, we kind of really liked it. It's different to my book, but, it, but there's a real sweetness to it and a, and a kind of comedy to it that we both really liked. And some of the film's hilarious. So, oh, yeah. You know, you know, some people have said to me that they really hated the film, but I don't. I really no, don't. and I didn't mean to put you in defensive mode about it. I, it <laughs> it's a very enjoyable film. It's a fantastic book. And they're quite, they're, they're similar, but they're different. Um, I guess what it was just, it struck me that it, it sort of taps into this whole problem of when you're trying to tell a story, um, you, you work to get the story out. And then everyone who hears it interprets it through their own filters, you know? Yeah, I've noticed that happening a lot. I mean, that's happening with this new book of mine. Yeah. Even the story like about the, the woman who told the, the AIDS joke, and I won't spoil it because that's a fantastic part of the book. Um, she tells this horrible AIDS joke. It's a joke. I mean, it, it's, it's, if, if uh, Gilbert Gottfried had said that on stage, it wouldn't surprise me at all, right? Yeah. But she wasn't Gilbert Gottfried. And everyone takes it out of context. And, and, and that seems like such a risk online that, the, uh, that without the context or, you know, without knowing the full story. And heck, even if you do something yourself or you say something yourself, maybe from one day to the next, you can't remember what the context was that drove you to say a particular thing, you know? It's... No. Yeah, if I ever see old tweets of mine, like so once in a while, like something I said like a year ago is retweeted, um, and I sort of see it, um, I always think, God, if I say that, I have no idea what I'm talking about. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know you're running out of time, but what seems missing from, not, not necessarily from your book, but from the whole uh, process of shaming is, the idea of a redemption narrative, like everyone knows how to publicly shame and then they'll forget what happened and maybe look it up in a Google search. But how do people get forgiveness anymore? Have you got any ideas about that? Well, quite honestly, I mean, the reason why I kind of didn't put a redemption narrative into this new book is because um, it's a really dark story. I was with broken people. And if you put in a redemption narrative, you're kind of letting us shamers off the hook, you know? So I sort of deliberate, so the book does end quite darkly. But honestly, the best way to survive a shaming, if you're in the middle of being shamed, the best way to survive is to stay completely silent for about a year. And thank God, you know, the human brain forgets things eventually. It sure does. People will forget, you know, the terrible thing that you did. So even though as social creatures, what we want to do is connect and communicate and explain when you're being shamed, just shut the hell up for like a year or two years. And maybe, you know, time 
time will be your friend. It works for for a lot of people, I, including very bad people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, okay. it works for everybody. There's some people are tainted forever. Well, and of course, the internet helps to taint forever. It does. If anyone bothers to look things up, which they rarely do. I could talk more and more about this, but okay, quick. Uh, I always like to ask this question: What's your favorite monster, John? Oh God, um, God, um, God is a terrible monster, John. But I don't God think that's appropriate. <laughs> I can't put that in there. But <laughs> okay, um, <laughs> also it makes no sense. Um, what is my favorite monster? Give me a second. Sure. The, the long silence. Oh, absolutely. Or I could put crickets in either way. So. <laughs> it's the girl in uh, Thomas Alfredson's Let the Right One In. Ooh, sweet. Yeah. Uh, no one's given that one before. Yeah, she's quite creepy. Yeah, great. Okay, John, everybody needs to get off this episode and then immediately go buy this book. It's fantastic. And So you've been publicly shamed. That's right. And the other book we discussed in detail, I'm... I'm being my own bibliography here, was um, Them, my first book, Them, Adventures with Extremists. That's right. And if you can find it on YouTube, The Secret Rulers of the World. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I apologize for the graininess, but it wasn't me who put it up there. Thank you so much, John, for spending some time with us. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Blake. Great talking to you again. Likewise. Take care. Bye. Bye. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith, and you just heard me interviewing John Ronson, author of the new book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed. A link to this book and other selected works from Ronson will be in the show notes at monstertalk.org. By coincidence, the accusations Ike has made about secret pedophile rings operating in the UK has strong similarities to claims made in the United States, which I researched for an episode of the Skeptoid podcast, which also went live this week. That episode is on satanic ritual abuse and the story of how wild accusations led to people being jailed for years or decades without sufficient evidence that any of the claims took place. Sadly, many of the UK cases do appear to be real cases of child abuse, though Ike does wrap up all his accusations in the framework of satanic lizard people cultists being to blame. All the turquoise tracksuits in the world can't make that kind of dark stuff comical. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. As always, the opinions expressed on Monster Talk are those of myself, my guests, and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the Skeptic Society, Skeptic Magazine, or our cold-blooded, vertically-pupiled, cave-dwelling reptile overlords. This is episode 97. There is still time to send in your contributions for episode 100. I'm delighted, just delighted, I say, at the responses so far. Thanks so much, and I hope you're able to contribute. Here's how. Hello, listener. How would you like to be on Monster Talk? I don't have time to interview everyone, but I'd like to do something interesting for episode 100 of the show, and I'd like your help. Here's all you need to do. One, decide what your favorite monster is. Two, record yourself digitally using this format. My name is blank, and my favorite monster is blank. Obviously, don't use the word blank. Fill in your actual information there. And then three, save that file and email it to me, blake at monstertalk.org. And here's the important part. Put the words episode 100 in the email subject. That's all you have to do. Send me your name and your favorite monster as an audio file and put episode 100 in the subject. Thanks for helping us make episode 100 extra fun. Special thanks to the supporters who have donated to Monster Talk. D.R. Crane, Robert Smith, Scott Barber, 
and David Koch. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thanks again for listening. that you can now subscribe to Skeptic Magazine digitally? Just grab our free Skeptic Magazine app, currently compatible with iOS, Android, PC, Mac, Kindle Fire, Kindle Fire HD, and BlackBerry Playbook. Head over to skeptic.com magazine slash app to find out more and download more of your favorite Skeptic content. I was running for Congress, exactly. And, and you know, worked for Ford and Nixon and Reagan and both Bushes. And there's still those people out there that think, you know, Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney are actually lizards who, I mean, literally, there's people that think they're lizards from outer space. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Who eat human flesh. I don't know if anybody's ever asked you directly, sir, but are you you a lizard? I don't think (laughs) Are you actually, can you just please give that a straight answer? Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime anywhere with daily bonuses that should brighten your day a little actually a lot so sign up now at chumbacasino.com that's chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary btw void were prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus say goodbye to your credit card rewards greedy corporate mega stores led by walmart and target are pushing for a law in congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets the durbin marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it if you love your credit card rewards tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards tell them to oppose the durbin marshall credit card bill 